just realized I forgot one of our passages, Romans 9. And it does tie in. I'm not going to preach to this. But it does tie into our series. The next three weeks, we will be looking at the flood account, uh, starting in chapter 6, going all the way through 9. This is Romans 9, verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That can be a difficult passage. I understand that. Um, it's just as great as John 3.16. One is easy to hear. Another is difficult to hear. And sometimes that kind of passage leads us to say that God is mean. Leads our world to say that God is mean. How can you worship a cruel God? And if you underestimate the evilness of sin, then God is mean. If we look at sin and call it anything different, then God is mean when we see his wrath and his justice. If you forget the fall when you think about hell or the flood or the Israelites conquering the land, then God is mean. This is from online. It's the, the blog, The Bible Through the Eyes of an Atheist by Tom Brown on the Christian Vision for Men blog. Let me read from it. This is just part of it. The Bible, no matter who you are, if you live in the West, you've probably read some of it. And if you don't own one, you probably did once. Not many people have read all of it, though. I know I haven't, and I doubt I ever will. For despite years of going to church religiously, I am an atheist. Perhaps the roots of my atheism lie in being bored during sermons and reading the Bible instead. Quick pause. By all means, if I bore you over the next three weeks, feel free to read your Bible. It's an unwritten rule in our youth ministry. If you get bored and you're reading your Bible, I still did my job. I'll begin quoting the article again. At first, I was looking for amusing bits in Proverbs. But the more I read of the Bible, the less comfortable I became with it. When I was a Christian, I read the bits of the Bible I was asked to read. The bit we were studying in the youth group. The bit the vicar based his sermon on. The bit my daily reading notes were about. But not the whole Bible. Good heavens, no. The idea of just sitting down and reading the Bible in order was treated as a pointless and slightly crazy thing to do. At my church, at least. Perhaps not surprisingly, the bits of the Bible where God has killed people are rarely selected for Bible study groups. I'd love to hear a sermon on 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24, where God sends bears to kill children for the crime of laughing at Elisha for being bald. But I'm not holding my breath. The more I read, the more bits I find that I don't like. And the more I struggled with the, those bits... The more I noticed that real Christians had an ability to seemingly only process the good bits of the Bible. 
So when I read the story of the flood, I was troubled by the ethics of God drowning almost everyone. Whereas Christians seemed able to ignore that bit and focus on the rainbow and God promising not to do it again. It's actually quite an interesting article if you want to look it up. You can find the link for me or it'll be in my notes when they reach online this week. So you can look it up. It is very interesting, and it will tell you what many of your neighbors think, especially when they hear about the flood. They don't enjoy the rainbow. They think that God is mean. But God is not mean. He's both loving and just, and in our youth ministries at least, 2 Kings 2 is one of my favorite stories. It's about a bald teacher. Every time we go to camp and somebody points out that I'm bald, I tell them to watch out for bears. But I also teach (laughs) about difficult passages in Scripture. I teach about that one. We, We teach with our senior ladies, at least, most years, the passage in Leviticus that talks about rape. Because when they go to college, sadly, in our world, they will have to deal with that. And it's difficult for them if we don't teach about it when they come across that passage like so many in the world and they think that God is mean. And he isn't. In fact, that bear attack story, by the way, it's not children, it's teens. And they aren't teenagers in America that don't know any better. They are teenagers in, the, in, I'm sorry, in Israel who do know better. And they are mocking the man of God that they know speaks for God to their nation. It's a much more complicated story than just a bunch of kids attacked by bears because a bald man can't handle his own baldness. Rather than ignore these moments, for the next few weeks we're going to look at how God, the God who wiped out humanity, was not mean as long as you don't underestimate the evilness of sin. So turn to Genesis 6, verse 5 through 8. We aren't even actually going to get to the flood. We're just going to get to the start of the account. Genesis 6, verse 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You have to remember the fall. You have to remember creation. You have to have read Genesis 1 through 5 before you get mad at God being mean because of the flood. You have to remember that God made everything, everything he's talking about wiping out and said it is good. It is good, every part of it. And then Genesis 3 broke it. You have to remember that. And Genesis 3, 4, 5, and the first part of 6 describes something very similar to what you see in the book of Judges, this horrible downward spiral of sin, a thing that should be good that is broken by man. And when I say man there, I include you women, humanity, mankind, people. We sin and it broke the goodness. 
And you have to remember that or you will get the picture of a mean God. But God is not mean. It starts in verse 5 by describing the situation, great wickedness. It's not just verse 5, it's in verse 11 and 12, it's also up in verse 3. But verse 11 and 12, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence or injustice. It's another way to translate that word. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. It's a comparison point to Genesis 1. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. When I do do marriage counseling, we talk about fighting, not fist fighting, that's bad. Arguing, discussions. I always love it when I I see two young people dating in the youth group and they say, oh, we never fight. You're like, you guys fight all the time. You just gave it a different name. But I tell them, premarital counseling, the high school kids dating, I kind of ignore them as much as I can. But (laughs) premarital counseling, I'll tell them, look, when you are arguing, you need to avoid extreme words, all never. You never do the dishes. I did them last week. I'm done. I did them once in my lifetime. You're wrong. I win. Little little premarital counseling tip there. You can't say never or all with people because I guarantee at some point I did or didn't. And you lost the argument and we get in this debate about winning. That's, That's not the case. So if you're arguing at home, set all aside and say, you forgot to do the dishes next week and they stink. Could you do them today? See how it's not combative then? That's a little aside. Here, though, God is completely justified using the alls, and you have to hear them in this passage. All mankind, all the time, every single thought. And God is not exaggerating and God is not incorrect. It has gone from a good world that God made with no sin to all sin. Great wickedness. Every inclination. Only evil all the time. That's what verse 5 said. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. By the way, I'll get to this in a minute. You and I don't know that moment we live post-cross. We do not live that moment. We don't even live in a world that lives that moment. This is pre-cross, and it is awful. Every inclination. It is total depravity. As Pastor Benji said last week, total depravity means that we are as depraved as we could be, but not all the time. Every part of us is depraved. So what that's getting at. But that doesn't mean, as you mentioned last week, that we're all like Hitler or as mind-boggling as it is, perhaps Hitler could have been even worse. But this is not just total depravity. This is total depravity totally. This is all the time as depraved as possible in every way and completely depraved. And always depraved in every way. Seems to be what Genesis 5 is saying. As opposite as, of good as you can get. By the way, if you've seen the movie, this seems to be about the only thing the Noah movie got correct besides the name. Not so much the caveman aspect of it, perhaps. They seem to be building cities. There's music. There's like a bronze and iron age going on. But they were awful. It described that well. Everything else, it's, it's a pretty horrible movie in terms of accuracy. 
but it caught the horrors. Think about, though, how different the cross has made things. We just wrapped up an end time series, and if you hold this, I don't, I don't mean to make fun of you. Uh, it's just always been difficult for me to see. Post-World War I and World War II, post-millennialism has always been a tough theology to understand and grasp given our current situation. But Pastor Benji and Greg, I don't hold this view, by the way, but Pastor Benji and Greg and I were talking in the hallway as we did often during that series. And I just made the comment or we thought about, but what, if it, what a difference Christ has made. If you put the right glasses on and you want to see post-millennialism, think about the difference the cross has made in the world over the last 200 years. Think about the impact of Christ on our culture, hospitals, schools, science, art, technology and advancement, civility and neighborliness, freedoms and rights. Those come from Christian cultures. Now, sure, non-Christian cultures have developed some things, but think about what the gospel has advanced as it advanced itself. Missionaries took hospitals and education to people that didn't have clean drinking water. When you don't have clean drinking water, you're not thinking about how to launch a rocket to the moon, which, by the way, many of you owe your jobs to. You're just thinking about how not to die when you drink water. And as the gospel came in, they said they can't hear us if they're dying, so let's get them clean water. World Vision pops up. And other ministries, Compassion Child, Compassion International. With where the gospel goes, advancement comes with it. Sadly, advancement is not the gospel. It'd be much easier if it was sometimes. People like TVs better than they like grace, it seems. But as the gospel goes out, it transforms not just hearts, but everything. And yes, as we toss the gospel out of our own culture, we are seeing more and more what this looks like. But verse 5 is describing something so much worse than we can imagine. Because we live post-gospel. We live post-cross. We live after we've already seen so many effects. We just take it for granted that people can read the Bible. And that in turn means they can read transcripts and history. And it advances in so much more ways, less important than, but still significant, so many more ways than just salvation, that being most crucial. But verse 5 is so much worse. An entire world that is living evil in every way possible at every moment. No sacrificial love, no helping your neighbor. neighbor. Every thought, every action toward everyone. Enemies, yes, but also neighbors and even family. But most offensively, it's towards God. Every thought, every inclination is rebellious at this point against the God who made everything good. This is what the knowledge of evil has done, and it's so bad that in verse 3, God declares that their lives will be shortened to 120 years. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. These are people that living, are living into their 900s. An 800-year-old man is, is living a short life to them. God says, I'm, 
<laughs> I'm tired of their sins piling up so much, I'll limit them to 120 years. Yes, some people argue it's 120 years until the flood. I don't think so because we do see everybody's ages drop. That's a fun study in and of itself. And it, by Moses, they dropped 120. It takes some time, but by Moses it drops to 120. Our culture thinks God is wrong for condemning anyone, particularly for daring to kill good people. But God never has a problem with good people or good things. Think about that for a minute. God never has a problem with good. His problem is with sin. And our problem is with our definition of good and our tendency to underestimate the evilness of sin. We turn and we blame God for that instead of looking and identifying the actual problem. My definition is wrong. Lord, I'm calling something good that you have recognized as sin. And that makes me tempted to call you mean. And the reality is I am simply mistaken, confused, and wrong. The Bible makes a clear case that man is not good and that God is just in his judgment. In Genesis 3, humanity gets banned from the garden for sin. Genesis 13, 13, not your favorite life verse, I'm, should, I'm sure, nor should it be. But it says this, and think about what's coming later in Genesis. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Sodom was not innocent. It's guilty. But God doesn't condemn them in chapter 13. He waits. He's patient. Exodus 1, 8 through 14, verse 16 and verse 22 talks about the horrors that the nation of Israel is facing in Egypt. And it describes the Egyptians as, as a whole as ruthless baby killers. That last word, by the way, ought to convict the United States and others. Grace to anyone who has had an abortion, please, if you haven't, don't consider one. But you want to talk about mean. God is not the one that is endorsing widespread societal baby killing. And I know that hurts many of you. But don't underestimate the evilness of sin. Ruthless infanticide, when we see it in Exodus and we see it spelled out, it's brutal because it is. But because of how we read the Bible and we chop it up so much and by the time you get to Passover it could be 15 days later. And we see God wipe out the firstborn of the nation of Egypt and any Israelites that did not obey and it's tempting to think that God is mean, but he isn't. He is just, but he is not mean. Why do we look at the people of history with rose-colored glasses and then look at God as if he were an evil tyrant? Both scripture and history tell a bleak tale of humanity. You don't even have to look at scripture for that lesson. Even post-cross, we are still often brutal and ruthless people. God made everything good and mankind has corrupted it in every way possible. And we see this in Genesis 6, verse 6 next. Not only that, but it brings God pain. 
What an astounding verse. It brings God pain, the wickedness of man. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. First, what, what doesn't this mean? It doesn't mean that God was surprised. It doesn't mean that God was wishing to change his mind or change his plan or anything along those lines. We know this because of what the Bible says in general about God's sovereignty and omniscience. He knew this moment. And he was sovereign over it. And it grieved him and brought him pain. On top of that, there's some interesting parallels linguistically in Genesis 3 and 4 and then here in verse 6. Go ahead and read them at some point. See if you find them. But what's being described in the curse and then with Lamech has some verbal parallels, it seems, to verse 6. It seems to be mimicking that a little bit. But it's communicating something to us about God. In particular, though, not just in general, we also know that God wasn't surprised and he didn't want to change his mind because of 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 20, what the Bible says specifically about God and his plan for salvation and history and creation. 1 Peter 1, verse 20, he, it's talking about Christ, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And what that tells us in the verses around us, around it, is that before God made anything good, he had the plan of redemption in place. So God isn't surprised. He already knows the cross. He's simply grieved by the evilness as it's taking place. So what does this mean? And more than that, what does this tell us about God? The God who isn't mean. It says he knows the depths of pain. We don't think about that in regard to God often, but this moment tells us, at least in this moment, God knows a depth of pain by the way that we will never know. You will know your pain, and you may know the pain of your family and some friends. God knows the pain of an entire world being evil at one time, and a history of people being evil. The comfort you get from someone who really does know what you're experiencing, not just somebody who says they do, God knows. So run to him for comfort. Think of what we see in Scripture. God knows rejection. The whole Bible points to people rejecting God. God knows loss. The cross is a story of loss. We simply enjoy the gain of the story. We know the grace, but God knows the pain of the cross. This even, by the way, includes death and hell. And originally I had put perhaps in my notes. I took the perhaps out. Listen to Ezekiel 18. I'm sure I've read this before with you. When I found this verse a number of years ago, I think I heard Pastor Benji say it actually. I fell in love with it. It keeps you in perspective when you are tempted to think that God is mean or heartless or cruel, or at least when you hear somebody else say it. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? He's not talking about his people now. He's talking about wicked people. Okay, could be talking about his people still, let's be honest. But 
Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In verse 32, very similarly, same chapter. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. If you spend enough time on any apologetic site or interacting with people of non-faith, with your faith, God will be accused many times of not caring about the wicked. Those two verses make it clear. He does not happily send anyone to hell, though he does send people to hell. There is a party over every person that comes to faith. The Bible points that out. But there is not a single party over any individual, God's creation, going to hell. Revelation 20, 21, 22, you see hell is for Satan. Yes, people will go there, but hell is for Satan. He's not the boss of hell, by the way. He's just the most infamous inmate. God knows grieving the reality of sin in a broken world. We see that in Genesis 6. It also tells us that he didn't spare himself from a plan of pain in history. He knew that and chose the plan anyway. I'm often asked, well, if God knew that man would sin Why did he create us? Why didn't he make us love us? Well, one, we wouldn't be people as we know it then. We'd be different. He could have, but we'd be different. And grace would be different. And he tells us that it's to show us grace. But another way to ask the question would be this. If God knew the pain that he would know, and he did, as odd as that sentence is in English, Why did he still create just to show us grace? Why did he create to show any of us grace? I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. If I knew there was going to be pain mowing the lawn every week, okay, we're in a drought. So mowing the lawn every summer, once maybe, (laughs) it's the upside of the drought. The downside is no water. But if I knew there was going to be pain every time, I would try to find a way to avoid it. I mean, enduring it is fine, it's pain, especially if it's a paper cut, not worse than that. But if I can avoid that paper cut, I will. That's just a paper cut. God knew completely ahead of time the pain he would endure, and Genesis 6, 6 still exists because God wanted to show people grace. That is not a mean God. That is a God that knows the pain of sitting in a hospital with a family member. It's a God who knows by experience and knows by sovereign forethought a painful moment. The fall, the flood, watching a chosen family and a chosen chosen nation flail and flounder. God knew those moments. The cross, God knew that moment before it happened. But he still hates sin. And so verse 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind 
whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved, I am pained that I have made them, not wishing for a different course, simply knowing the reality of the wickedness of sin. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and as the Bible does so often, there's a remnant and there's hope. The story will not end, it will continue. He doesn't go with wiping everything out. He goes with kind of a reboot, which we'll talk about a little bit next week and the week after. Don't underestimate the evilness of sin, though, by forgetting verse 5. God is not mean here. Don't underestimate the evilness of sin by forgetting the creation account and the fall account. Those are so close. It's meant to be remembered. And in Revelation, it's meant to be remembered, even though it's far away in in the Bible. Don't consider God mean when the Ezekiel passage puts this in perspective. God is 100% affected by this moment and still will wipe out humanity, most of it at least. In fact, God's grace is all that has allowed life to continue after the fall to begin with. Man deserved to die in the moment. God would have been 100% justified to end Adam and Eve at that very second It's his grace that allowed life to take place. We need to realize humanity's sin is so offensive that the creator is ready to reboot the system here, to restart. Humanity's not even close to good, and a just response from God is warranted no matter how devastating it may be, and that is true at every moment that sin is involved. No matter the story in the Bible, God is not mean. In fact, quite often he's been shown to be loving and gracious. Genesis 15, 13, 14, and 16. God chose Abraham the land and he says, but you won't conquer it today. You'll come back later because I'm patient with them. Their sins have not offended me enough to wipe them out yet. But when he does, that should tell us that their sins reached a point that God would no longer tolerate. It's time for justice. Genesis 18.32, Abraham's talking to God about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to wipe it out, and he goes through that numbers game, and Abraham keeps bartering down. God finally says, for the sake of ten righteous, I will not wipe out the city. If you continue on and read the story of Lot, you'll know the answer is there were zero righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was not a single one. Lot was not righteous. His wife was not righteous. His daughters were definitely not righteous. Continue on in Genesis. You're supposed to remember the whole story. God is not being mean with Sodom and Gomorrah. He is being absurdly gracious with Lot's family. Even at the garden, showed that picture before. We can put it back up right now. Matthew 26 I love this. This is another one I I love sharing with our students. Matthew 26, verse 52 to 54. It's right after Peter whacks off that guy's ear. Another fun story. Fun being used in quotes, by the way. I'm I'm not that disturbed. Verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 
figured this out once talking with either the church or our students. I, I don't quite remember, and I didn't take the time to look it up. We're not talking about Vandenberg even. We're talking about Camp Pivelton landing in somebody's backyard. And the picture scripture gets is the angels in heaven. I know I'm, I'm elaborating, but I think, it's, I think it's there. The pictures, the angels in heaven are chomping at the bit to come wipe everybody out because it's Jesus. And Peter grabs a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. He's like, yeah, look at me. Jesus goes, Peter, knock it off. Don't you think they could come do a better job? The only reason they aren't invading right now is grace. Imagine Camp Pendleton landing in your backyard to defend one person. And it's grace that says the cross needs to happen. This pain needs to happen, and you think it doesn't pain God? Look at Jesus praying right before that moment. The pain will be so great, even knowing there's no other plan, he's praying that if there were, now's the time. He knows there isn't. He knows there's legions that can come down and it is God's not being mean that saves us in that moment. The Bible makes a clear picture that God is not mean, but gracious. He is just. Because we underestimate the evilness of sin, we misinterpret justice as meanness sometimes. Last week, Pastor Benji made a great statement regarding this topic. Quote, until you know how bad you are, you'll never know how good God is. End quote. God is not mean. Rather, it's amazing how loving and gracious he is, but truly, to truly understand this, we must stop underestimating the evilness of sin. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. How am I trivializing sin or presuming innocence on the part of myself or others? When you read scripture and you think that you're confronted with a mean God, you need to ask how you are trivializing sin in that moment. There is never a mean God in the Bible, there's only a God who is always loving and always just. Both, all the time. There is no mean God in Scripture. That, that atheist blogger is wrong. I would have loved to have him in my youth group. I don't know if I'd have been able to solve his problem. That's beyond me. But I'd have known what he would have been taught and I'd have had to say, you weren't paying attention. I know my teachers, and I know they don't discuss a mean God. They discuss the God of the Bible, who is loving and gracious and, yes, just. But he is a good God. And when we read scripture, we need to remember that and make sure we pay enough attention to the story to get the picture right. When talking with others or looking at the clash between culture and the church, we need to remember that you are not on the wrong side of history about anything if you are on Scripture's side. You will surely be on the wrong side of the moment often 
if you were on Scripture's side. But stand firm and stand lovingly. First Peter 3.15 says not just to give an answer, but to give a gracious answer. Not anger, but a loving and just answer, which we often see in Scripture. We need to ask ourselves, how am I underestimating the badness, the evilness of sin in my own life? What am I accepting that God would not? What am I justifying that I shouldn't? And anything else along those lines. Where there's sin in my life, where in Scripture does it point out the right attitude and worldview? How am I accusing God instead of understanding the reality of the situation, both the evilness of sin and the justness of God that needs to be conscious on our mind anytime we are tempted to call God by an attribute Scripture does not give him? God is both gracious and just in the face of sin. He simply is not mean. We just need to stop underestimating the evilness of sin. Let's pray. Lord, your grace is so sweet. As we look at a a hard passage telling us what we know, what we hide from all the time, (laughs) that we aren't as good as we like to think. More than that, that apart from you, we are downright evil often. As we look at a point in history where we were evil always, Lord, thank you for the cross that has changed the world. Thank you for the cross that has changed the lives of so many people in this room. May we always celebrate your grace, your might and your power and your love and your gracious justice, but always your grace that you paid the price for sin at the cross that we could sing and rejoice in your presence instead of cowering in fear. You are gracious, Lord. We praise your name. Amen.